Our reading today is some more laws, Exodus 22:16 through 23:9. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or vats or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of, any animal, of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do, follow, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd, and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure and return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me again? Father, um, some passages of the Bible are pretty straightforward and clear and easy to understand, and some are more complicated. And today we're looking at one that is a little more complicated and strange to us. So we pray that you would help us to see and understand what is here. And even more importantly, help us to know what it means to put your word into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're back in Exodus. Last week we began this section of laws which follow the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments we know are the big principles, the kind of the core of Israel's law that God gave Israel, and these are the working those laws out in daily life. 
Um, now, why, why should we be reading this? Besides, like, it's just the next part in the story in the book, does it really matter that we understand this part of the Bible? I want to say it does because it's God's word, and we are God's people, and we need to listen to what he says. And sometimes that can be more challenging to do as we listen to words that were given to ancient Israel in their context. But this does have something to say for us. As Sarah read the passage, you may have, may have thought, what's, what's the order here? What's the common thread? Is this just a jumble of laws all stacked up together? There's sorcery, bestiality, foreigners, widows, money lending, bribery. How are these things all related or not? I believe that there's a clear theme in this passage, and that theme is justice. The Holman Bible Dictionary defines justice as the order God seeks to reestablish in his creation where all people receive the benefits of life with him. It's about God's order for the world, justice. Now, we know that God had freed his people from injustice, from oppression under Pharaoh, but why did he free them? They were free so that they could serve God. And so that they could bring about his order in the world and model a community that lives under God's justice. That's why he gave them his law. Now in this passage we see that, that God's good order, his justice, is measured in two ways. It's how people treat God and how people treat vulnerable people. That's what we see in this passage. And those two are woven together. So from where we sit, on this side of the cross, an empty tomb, um, we may not be bound by these laws in the same way that Israel was. However, I do know that God still cares about justice. Pursuing justice is not optional for God's people, for the church. In fact, we should have even more reason and more incentive to care about justice than Israel did. But it all depends on how we answer these two questions. How do we treat God and how do we treat the vulnerable? So I want to talk about those two things today. How do we treat God? It may sound like a strange question as if God is someone we can, you know, relate to like a person, we can ignore him or begrudge him or disobey him or we can revere him and treasure him and befriend him. And actually it's true. Uh, we have the capacity to, um, uh, to, to interact with God in a real relationship. And so this is saying, this passage is saying that... Um, uh, justice starts with the way we treat God. Think of it this way. If you want to build a house, you need a level foundation. So if the house was called justice, the foundation 
is to revere God, to put him first, to refuse to entertain his rivals, and to let his plumb line define what is level and true and straight. Now there are several laws here that illustrate this principle. Verses 16 and 17 um, and verse 19, God commands sexual purity of his people. So in 16 and 17, we see that premarital intercourse was forbidden, as it is in the New Testament, by the way. And doing so here would either mean tying the knot or, if the father refused, paying the bride price, which could be a few years' wages. That's a big deal. An even more heinous sexual sin is bestiality, which is, uh, was probably a, a practice associated with pagan rituals. Those things pervert God's good order for sexuality. Verses 18 and 20 forbid spiritual adultery. Sorcery, verse 18, is allying with evil spirits to get some kind of power or control. Um, so allying with God's enemies to get what you want. As is verse 20, sacrificing or worshiping um, a pagan god. Skipping down to verse 28, we see the sin of blasphemy condemned. Blasphemy is cursing God or treating his name with contempt. And then in verses 29 through 31, uh, we get something that may sound trivial to us, but really is at the heart of the matter here. Verse 29 says, Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or vats. None of us have, well, some of you may have granaries if you're a farmer, but most of us don't. But at harvest time in Israel, uh, each Israelite was expected to give the first and the best portions of their produce, their wheat or their oil or their grapes, whatever, to the Lord via the priesthood. So, by the way, these laws were given to Israel in the wilderness, but they're meant for Israel in the promised land. When they have land and regular uh, cycles of agriculture. So, um, giving God the first and best of their crops or their herd or their olive oil had, had two purposes. <clears throat> One was practical to um, feed the priests and to supply needs for the temple and to uh, help the poor. But the other reason was spiritual. Because it's one thing to say you love God the most of all. It's quite another to actually give over the best of what you have. Your first fruits. Right? Now, when at a time when wealth was measured in land and livestock and children, God is saying, give me the best of your wealth, the best of what you have. Don't hold anything back. Um, and Jesus taught the exact same thing. He said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Submit to his will above all. Give your best to him. 
So quickly here, I want to pause and ask you to do a heart check. Because when we read something like this, we should think, am I putting God first functionally in my life? Do I just say that I love God most of all, or do I actually give him my best? When you sit down to, to make your budget or to figure out what to do with the money you got for that month, is giving to the Lord and to, to Christian causes the first thing you think about, or is it an afterthought? Right? When you, uh, you want to make a life decision, do you look to the world around you to define what is right, or do you look to God's word to define what is right, even if it goes against what you feel. That's giving God your best. Don't hold anything back from him. We see now that in Israel, putting God first was linked with the way we treat other people. And so number two, how do you treat those who are vulnerable? As I studied this passage this week, I was impressed by the number of times God speaks about vulnerable people. Uh, more precisely, there are four groups of people mentioned in this passage. There are foreigners, widows, orphans, and the needy. Four different types of vulnerable people. So first, the foreigner. Look at verse 21. The Lord says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. He says that again in 23, verse 9, as if to reiterate this principle. A foreigner was someone who might have come across Israel's borders because of a famine or a war somewhere, and now they're refugees seeking a new place to live. Um, or they could have been a traveler. You know, maybe a migrant worker. So these people didn't have land. They didn't have a family. They didn't have a name or sort of a, um, you know, a reputation, which made them, uh, maybe they didn't speak the language, which made them vulnerable to oppression, vulnerable to exploitation. That's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. Remember Abraham's uh, uh, son Jacob, uh, uh, grandson Jacob, his family went down to Egypt because of a famine. And at first things went well for them there, but then when Joseph died, who was their protector, and a new pharaoh came into power, suddenly this new pharaoh said, I'm going to turn these Hebrews into some free labor. I'm going to enslave them and exploit them. That's what happened. So God says, you know what it's like to be mistreated as a foreigner. And by the way, did you know that in the Old Testament laws, there are more commands about protecting foreigners than there are about any other single subject? Can you believe that? God really cares about protecting foreigners. That's close to his heart. The second and third categories of vulnerable people named here are widows and orphans. So verse 22 
says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless, a.k.a. orphan. It is a gross injustice in God's eyes to take advantage of someone like a, a widow or an orphan who in that time had no protection, no father to uh, provide income, or husband to provide income, or a family security. The fourth category of such people is in verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. There were no banks in ancient Israel, right? And so lending money was not for starting a business or for financing a home. It was simply for helping the poor. That's why people would give money, would lend money. The needy refers to someone who would be uh, destitute. You know, someone who only had the cloak on their back. And maybe they had lost everything to a famine or just a bad harvest or disease. And now all they have is the clothes on their back and the ability to make money doing labor for a day. So they might want to borrow some money to buy some seeds or to buy a tool or to buy a blanket or some bread to make, uh, some flour to make bread. And God says, don't try to make money off of the poor. This is justice. When Meg and I lived in Illinois, Waukegan, Illinois, there were a lot of poor people there who were just scraping by. And unfortunately, there were also a lot of little stores and shops with names like payday loans or title loans or quick cash. And the way these predatory lending operations worked is that you came in in desperate need of money. You had something like your car title or your pay stub as collateral. And you could get a short-term loan of up to like $500 but the interest rate was like 400%. You only had a month to pay it off. It had to be paid off in one single lump sum. And there were all kinds of fees and things associated. So you might end up, you know, and of course, if you're poor, you don't have the money to pay it off next month. So what happens is you end up in this cycle of debt where you took out a $400 loan and end up owing 4000 in a couple of years. And meanwhile, people are getting rich off of the poor. In the next few sentences, we hear the reason that God cares about poor and vulnerable people. Look at verse 26. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, listen to this, I will hear for I am compassionate. I am compassionate. God cares for people who are in need. He's compassionate. And his, his good order of things, his justice outlaws any form of exploitation of vulnerable people. He cares about social justice. The greatness of a nation 
can be measured in how it treats its most vulnerable members. You've probably heard that quote. It's been attributed to various people over the years, but whoever said it, God agrees with that. Israel was to be a great nation, and they were to treat the poor, the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, with utter protection and respect, more than any other nation around them did. Now in chapter 23, verses 1 through 8, God applies this more specifically to the court system, to witnesses and juries and judges, because it doesn't matter how good the laws are if they're not enforced fairly, right? We're not going to go through that, those verses in detail. But why does God spend so much time in his law talking about protecting vulnerable people? Why? Because he knows that uh, it doesn't happen by accident. Vulnerable people are easily exploited. It's so easy to follow the path of least resistance, which allows the poor to be treated badly, which allows widows and orphans to be ignored or exploited. Right? The path of least resistance always leads to injustice. And God does not want that to happen. Um, so in the court system, he says, don't uh, spread lies, verse 1. Don't go along with whatever the crowd is saying, verse 2. Don't allow someone's poverty to change the way you see them, either to show favoritism, verse 3, or to deny them justice, verse 6. Don't try to buy justice with bribes, verse 8. All of those things are the path of least resistance. God knows that for injustice to spread, good people just have to look the other way. And it happens, right? So what does this mean for us today? I want to get more specific here. These laws to Israel are embedded in their context, their nation state, and in the old covenant. So we can't simply lift them off the page and apply them to our lives in a one-to-one -one ratio. But here's what we do know. Um, God still cares about justice. Um, God still cares about needy people, and we still need to treat God with reverence. Have you ever noticed reading the New Testament, maybe, the light and life of Jesus? Have you noticed how he spent a disproportionate amount of time with poor people and outcasts and widows and orphans and the needy. That's where he focused his ministry because those are the people that got ignored and exploited and passed over in Jewish society, in any society. When Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, a new community was born called the church. And in the church, um, like ancient Israel, God wanted his justice to be lived out before a watching world. In the early days, we read in the book of Acts, 
There were no needy people among them, it said, because they redistributed what they had with each other. The church took care of widows and orphans and foreigners. They all had equal status in Christ. And then in church history, we see the same thing. In the Roman Empire, um, Christians would sometimes go to the, the slave market and purchase slaves off the auction block to set them free. Or they would go to where babies had been abandoned and orphaned and left to die and pick them up and give them a home. Did you know that the first hospital was invented, was, was founded by a Christian bishop named Basil the Great, Basil of Caesarea, excuse me, um, in the 4th century because there were no places for poor, sick people to go get help. And so he invented this place, which became what we know of as a hospital. Wherever the church has revered God and has stayed on mission, justice has been done. But sadly, as you know, there have also been some epic failures. The path of least resistance. Uh, Israel's history, um, you know, pre-New pre Testament, but this, it illustrates that the less they revered God, the worse they treated the poor. The more idols they worshipped, the, less widow, the fewer widows they helped. The more they strayed from God's commands, um, the more unjust their society became. And that has happened in our own history here in the United States. In colonial America and up to the Civil War, we had a nation of many Christian people who looked the other way on the issue of slavery. Many, in fact, proactively justified it and defended it, saying things like, well, it's an economic necessity, or God commands it in Scripture, or the Negroes are happier when they're enslaved. All kinds of twisted and foolish ways of looking the other way and of letting injustice just happen for hundreds of years. They were, in fact, violating God's law and causing suffering to so many people. But let me give you an example very close to home for us. Franklin County, you may not know it, has hundreds of migrant farm workers, mostly from Mexico. Um, many of them presumably are here uh, without legal status. They're brought by smugglers. They have no papers, no protection, with no um, means of transportation on their own. Um, they don't speak the language. They don't have a bank account. And so this makes it very easy for unscrupulous farmers to take advantage of them. Right here, we're talking like miles or, you know, a few towns away from where we live. <clears throat> um, and so some of them live, um, li they live on the farm. Some of them live in the barn itself in closet-sized, barely heated rooms. Some are packed into garages with a propane heater and a porta potty outside. This is happening right in our backyard. 
The only reason I know about this is because I have a friend who volunteers with an organization called Bridges to Health, Health, and he provides transportation for some of these migrant workers to doctor's appointments because they have no way of getting to the hospital or getting to the dentist or getting basic health care. What would, it, what would happen if Christians who knew these people or who knew some of these farmers said, we're not going to look the other way. We're going to try to do something about this. Some of those migrant workers, I bet, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. What would it look like if the church decided to not look the other way, to not take the path of least resistance? I don't have the answers to all those questions, but I do know that if we believe in Jesus, we of all people should care about justice. That's because we know that God has looked on us with compassion. You see, although we treated God badly, although we treated God badly and made a mockery of his laws, Jesus came after us. And Jesus willingly endured the worst miscarriage of justice in human history for us. He, the perfect Son of God, was was conspired against, falsely accused, brutalized, sentenced to death alongside criminals for us to take to take God's punishment for our injustices away and to make us right, to justify us with God. As we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment, we remember that he gave his body and his blood to justify us, to pay for our sin, to make us right. So God can look at sinners and spiritual orphans like us and say, you are my beloved child. You belong to me. That should make us care about justice. So I want to leave you with one more set of questions that you can, that you can take and personally apply in your life who are the most vulnerable people in your circle? Is it a kid at school who's getting bullied? Is it someone at work who's not being treated fairly? Is it a widow in need? Is it a foster child that you know? Some of these people, you may have some influence or some power to help make a difference in their lives and to show them the love of Jesus in how you care for them and stick up for them. So may we be people of justice who follow God's heart. Amen.